0: So open our Bibles to uh, Luke chapter 17, and uh, Paul read for us verses 1 through 4. I've entitled the morning's message, Forgiveness, Repentance, and Love. And then he said to his disciples, It is impossible that no offense should come, but woe to him through whom they do come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. Take heed to yourself. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to say, I repent, you shall forgive him. Uh, This morning as we make our way through the Gospel of Luke, uh, I would like to look... At um, forgiveness, repentance, and love from three different points of view. Uh, The first one will be how do we respond as a believer when we're sinned against by somebody who isn't a believer? Number two, how do we respond in forgiveness and repentance from one believer to another believer? And number three, how do we respond when the Lord speaks to us on a personal level? In this case this morning, I'm going to use the seven letters to the seven churches where he speaks to the churches um, that are in need of repentance. Of the five, only two um, received no warning of correction or rebuke. So with that as a background, let's look at the first one this morning. How, how should we react uh, to forgiving a non-believer who has sinned against us? And I thought about this, and um, I remember so many times um, just watching TV and some horrendous act takes place, and um, there's a murder, and people are killed, and... Um, um, when it comes to court, uh, many times a person will get up or confront that person, and it says, I just want you to know that I forgive you, even though you've done this. So I thought about it, and so I thought I'd, I'd look for a story just for an example, and I came across a guy named Martinez uh, uh He was left for dead after attackers viciously beat him with a hammer his wife and 10-year-old daughter were murdered in the random home invasion. But citing his Christian faith, Martinez is choosing to forgive. The 39-year-old says his faith has made it possible to forgive the killer who perpetrated what local police calls one of the most heinous crimes in memory. Martinez made it clear that he expects Clay to pay here on earth for his terrible and senseless act. He will pray for his crime. He will be punished for what he has done to my family. He must face justice, and whatever penalty the judge hands down, including death, if that is how he is to be sentenced. Later, when asked by a reporter what he would say to Clay if he could, Martinez replied, I would say, I forgive you. If he kissed me on the cheek, I would kiss him right back. And if either that, uh, or you have the rest of, uh, it's either that I should say, unless that's what you come up with, what you're gonna live with with that memory in your head of what they did to your family, what it's gonna produce in you over time is not just hatred, but that hatred's gonna grow. And it's going to grow into a vengeance. It'll preoccupy your thoughts, it'll preoccupy your mind. Vengeance. Some day somehow I'm going to get even with you for what you did. But the scripture says, if you're taking notes, Romans twelve, verse nineteen, behold, do not avenge yourself, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. Do you realize that nobody gets away with anything? Uh, Non-believers that will stand before the great white throne judgment says, the books were opened. And every thought, deed, action that was ever done is gonna be exposed on that day. And um, so nobody ever gets away with anything. The question is, as a believer, by doing this act, the potential for the guy that committed this, this crime, when he heard he was forgiven by this guy, he has to go to prison, and he's got to think about that. I mean, what do you do in a jail cell, 12 by 12, or whatever dimensions it is, except think of what you've done and how that man lived and what he, what he must be thinking about me. And he's got to think about it for the rest of his life. Now he's got to think about the fact that he forgave him. How could he ever forgive me for what I've done to him? What's the potential of that guy saying whatever he's got I want? Probably pretty good. A lot of people come to the Lord when they're sitting in a jail cell having to contemplate uh, what what has been done. That's how we should react to a non-believer who has sinned against us. Vengeance is the Lord. It's gonna be taken care of, but why should you lose any sleep over it or why should you allow bitterness or resentment or hatred, as the word says, wrath, if we don't give it to the Lord? Now, number two, Jesus is teaching on Christians forgiving other Christians. For this one, we actually go to our text, and I want to emphasize one little word here. Let's read it again. Um, I'm con- uh, let's go, make our way right down to verse three. It says, take heed to yourself if your brother sins. And now we're talking brother on brother, sister on sister. Against you, we'll then rebuke him. And if, and I really want you to see the importance of this big little word. If. If he repents. Forgive him. So, and if he sins against you seven times in a day. Um, and a day returns and says I repent you shall forgive him but the, the big word here is if he repents because sometimes they do um, sometimes they say they do but they really don't but here the, the instructions are clear uh, the question then comes well what if he doesn't repent do I still forgive him so now you got a brother who's sinned against you You've confronted him, but he doesn't repent of it. And um, what the Lord does is he lays out for us how we're to go about this. I'm so grateful for the scriptures. It tells us how to walk the walk. Good place for it, amen. Tells us what to do and how to do it. I mean, we're talking real practical everyday stuff here when we're talking about um, being human and sinning against one another. And with that, turn to Matthew chapter 18, and the Lord gives very explicit instructions on what we're to do when a brother or sister sins against us. Um, picking it up in verse 15 of chapter 18, moreover, if your brother sins against you, well, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. We're one-on-one. A lot of times, um, the last person to hear that he's mad against somebody, is um, uh, it turns into, uh, well, you need to pray for my friend because this is what he did to me. You know what they call that? Gossip. (laughs) Oh, it's overtone in spirituality and all that sort of stuff. There's nothing more than gossip. That's not what the Bible says to do. You don't spread that around. You go to them one-on-one. If your brother sins against you, you go tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, well, you've gained your brother back. Yeah, I got in the flesh. I got upset with you, and um, I blew it. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? Yeah. All right, let's go get a burger. (laughs) Or anything, you know, the air's air's cleaned out, um, no awkward feelings, and that's what the Lord says to do. Hopefully that happens. But let's say it doesn't. He still sinned against you, it's still wrong. But if he will not hear you, then take with you one or two more, and then it quotes Deuteronomy 17. Whenever I get the opportunity, I like to connect the old with the new. And here, the Lord is quoting Deuteronomy 17. He says, for by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And so now the guy's getting more serious. Maybe he might be a little bit more intimidated if this guy takes a couple of the guys with him. And he said, he said, well, this guy said you did this against him. Did you or didn't you? Yeah, I did, so what? That's the attitude of the unrepentant of man. He still did it, and even not denying it. But um, there's there's no action of, of repentance. Now, if even that doesn't happen, verse 17, and if he refuses to hear them, then tell it to the whole church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you as a heathen and a tax collector. Let's think about this for a second. One-on-one doesn't hear it. Two or three go on, try to get it right. Doesn't work out. Now, these, just so happens, they're going to the same church. Had to be great back in these days because there wasn't 40 churches in town. You get mad at somebody, all you have to do is slip off and go to another church. Here, when you went to church, it was the same church. And so now, it's, it's a church issue. And it has to be addressed Why? Because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Now the whole church knows about it, and he still doesn't repent. And so an attitude could be raised up in the church. An attitude is copped. Well, I can get away with it. I can sit against somebody. No, nobody's going to do anything about it. So I think I'll do that too. That can't happen. Paul said, "A little leaven, just a little bit. It'll permeate the church." And instead of doing what a Christian should do, what the clearly, Lord clearly said in Luke, is if your brother sins against you, if he repents, then you forgive him. Another good place for an amen. <laughs> okay, but this guy doesn't, doesn't, even when it's brought to that degree, um, the instructions are here, that he says, that if he refuse, but if he refuses to hear the whole church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. In other words, he's not acting as a Christian should act. So just like the same situation in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 5, where there was sexual immorality in the church, Paul says he's got to go until he repents. Well, the good news is he did repent. Uh, but this guy, he says, you treat him like a non-believer. Because he's acting like a non-believer. The word is clear on what to do and how to do it. He's not doing it, so this is how you treat him. What do you suppose that's gonna do for the rest of the church? Uh, they had a problem. This is it in my notes, but it's coming to my mind right now. Right after the 3,000 got saved at Pentecost, Ananias and Sapphira um, were landowners, and Barnabas... Um, because there were people from all over the world there for Pentecost, he had some money, so he gave it to the church, and um, everybody's going around saying, "Hey, thanks, Barnabas, you're a great guy, and thanks for helping us out like this." And Ananias and Sapphira heard about it, and they liked the attention that Barnabas was getting. So um, he talks to his wife and say, "Well, let's sell a little piece of land and give him, and uh, give him some of the money, but we'll tell him we gave." gave all to him, and as he's presenting this to uh, the apostles, he confronts him and says, why do you lie to the Holy Spirit by telling him you did this, but you really didn't, and he falls over dead, and after he carried the body out, his wife comes in and he says, let me ask you a question, did you sell your piece of property for so much money and so much money? Oh yeah, we did, we gave it all to the church, she falls over dead. So what was the result of that? The next verse is, and great fear fell upon the church. Now, I am really glad that it was a one-time experience. Otherwise, everybody would be dead in church. <laughs> I don't have anybody to teach or talk to because we've done the same. But it was an object lesson in the beginning, just like in, in this here. It has to be done because that little leaven, or that lie that you don't think is important is lying to the Holy Spirit. And the Lord says, I'm not gonna tolerate it, so I'll set a good example right at the beginning so in case anybody else is thinking about doing it, they're gonna think two or three times about it. So we read, um, let's go to, let's take it to, now the person The reason, let's go to the reason this person has to repent and forgive. The Lord goes on from here and he gives instructions about forgiveness in um, Matthew 18, picking it up in verse 21. And we read then Peter came to him and said, Well, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Well, In comparing Luke with this here, it makes me wonder why Peter says seven times. Is it because the Lord said seven times before? The Pharisees said, um, um, uh, you can forgive a guy up to three times and then that write him off. Well, Peter, probably thinking, I'll impress the Lord with this one. I'll say seven. Pharisees say three, I'll double it and add one. Just, just for a little, just to be impressive. And it raises a good question. I don't have an answer. But Jesus said, I do not say unto you seven times, but up to 70 times seven. That's 490. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought up to him who owed him 10,000 talents. We're talking oh in, in today's terms probably millions of dollars. But as he was not able to pay this was way beyond what he could come up with. His master commanded that he be sold and his wife and children all that he had be, um, and that payment be made. But the servant therefore fell down before him saying master Uh, Please have patience with me and I will pay you all. Now, I I believe this guy was sincere, but I don't think he had the means to pull it off. And I think the king knew he didn't have the means to pull it off. And the king's probably thinking, you know what? This guy's humbling himself before me. I don't want him to be thrown in jail with his wife and kids. And the key word here is um, he was moved with compassion for this guy. He'd gotten himself way, 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 way in debt. And now it's pay up time and he couldn't do it. And he had compassion on him, verse 27, and he released him and he forgave him the whole thing. If it is the millions of dollars. Well, on his way home. But that servant went out and found out one of his fellow servants who owed him a 100 denarii. Considerably, considerably less. And he laid hands on him, took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. So this fellow servant fell down and he goes through the exact same routine that this guy had just done with the king. And he begged him, saying, Please just be patient with me and I'll pay you all. And I believe he was sincere. The difference here is I think the guy if he would have had the patience he could have probably settled things up but he wouldn't do it so we read in verse 30 and he would not but he went and he threw him into prison till he should pay the debt so when his fellow servants saw what had been done they were grieved and they were grieved because you guy you went home free and clear The king forgave you something you could never repay. And what do you do? You go out and grab a guy by the throat who owes you 20 bucks and you're going to put him in jail for, for, for that. They were grieved. And they came and told their master, this would be the king, all that had been done. Now, the king, the master, after he had called him, he said, you wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And his master was now angry. And he delivered him to the tortures until he he should pay all that was due to him. Now the verse to answer Peter's question. So my heavenly father will also do to you, if each of you, the important part here is from your heart, does not forgive his brother his trespasses. The analogy is simply this. There's not enough money in the universe to pay for your forgiveness. That's what the Lord is saying here. You have a debt, each and every one of us, that we cannot pay. And unless the king, after we humble ourselves and just say have mercy on me, unless we do that, um, the only one that can forgive that debt is the Lord, and the most precious commodity in this universe is the blood of Jesus Christ, amen? A debt that you can't pay was forgiven you. How dare you if a guy is sincere in wanting to be forgiven for something he's done against you? How dare you or me have the audacity to have something so trivial compared to eternal? There's no comparison. So the Lord says, unless you get this right and you need to do it not, just say, okay, I forgive you and you don't really mean it, but it's from here. You forgive that person from here. But again, I want to throw the word if in here. This is important. Both of them begged. Uh, one was shown compassion, one was not. And um, the idea of... of uh, not having the repentance, well, that's that is instructed also in Matthew, uh, the 15 verses here. So, what are the consequences if you don't forgive? Well, that's what the last part of this is you'll be de- delivered over to the tortures when you sin against somebody and, um, um and you get a, say you get away with it and, um, You don't make things right. How does it feel when you lay your head on the pillow at night? Is it still going around in your head? Yeah. Is it always awkward every time you run into that person? Yeah. And um, it's um, a mental torture on your conscience because you would hold that sin against that person without forgiving him. That person could go, you know, a week later and forget about the whole thing, but not you. It's in the back of your head, and it's going to stay there for a long, long time. The Holy Spirit is very good at keeping that there, say, make it right, make it right, make it right, and you keep blowing it off, blowing it off, and blowing it off. So the result of unforgiveness is this torment, and um, uh, that's what happens when people walk in, unforgiveness a conscience um, hard times sleeping and again when you see that person it can be awkward it's, it's, it's funny because sometimes um, I can observe people um, in a sort of a, a body language thing where they got a ought against you you're not quite sure what it is but you know they got a problem with you can you guys identify what I'm talking about here a lot of times you see a brother or sister, everything's cool and fine. She, hey, bro, what's happening? It's cool, everything's fine. And you got a big smile. But then there's, there's something going on and um, you both know what it is or maybe one knows what it is and the other one's keeping it in. Are you following this conversation? <laughs> Rather than trying to ex- express it verbally, let me give you uh, these two people walking past each other when things aren't 100% Right? So you look at him, and then you keep walking. Oh, was that? Pretty good word for wording. You look at him, and then you just keep right on going. That's awkward <laughs> because things aren't right. The air has—it has been brought out into the open, and it hasn't been talked through, and um, and that goes on, and it shouldn't go on in the body of Christ. For whose sake? For your sake. You're the one that's got to live with it or the other person. You want to live with that or do you want to live free as a bird? Well, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. And part of knowing that truth is what forgiveness is all about. And it's not just an outward saying. It's something you do from your heart. And you'll know. The Holy Spirit say, okay, that's good. You're clean. You've done what you're. You've done your, your part of it. And so now, let's take it Um, to the next step and um, how the Lord um, deals with the churches in the area of repentance. And for this, um, there's a lot of scriptures we could go to, but I want want to use the example of the churches in the book of Revelation chapter 2 and 3. So let's make our way to Revelation chapter 2. Years 96 AD, all the other disciples have been martyred except for John. John was actually the co-founder of the church of Ephesus. Remember John, that disciple whom Jesus loved? Isn't that how he referred to himself? So the Lord appears to him, and we're told that when he appears to him, that uh, he had in his right hand seven stars and that went out of his mouth a two-edged sword and his countenance was like the sun. And John fell at his feet and he was afraid. Uh, We read in verse 20, seven stars and seven lampstands are explained to us. This is what John saw in verse 20. The mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the seven angels, or literally messengers. It could be a reference to the pastor of the local church. And the seven churches and the seven lampstands, which you saw, are the seven churches. So he was told to write to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamus, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. The first one we find here is to the church of Ephesus. Let's read uh, the first five verses. Uh, To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil, you have tested those who say they are apostles that are not. And you found them liars. Sounds like they're doing pretty good. And you have persevered and have patience. You've labored for my name's sake. And you have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from once you have fallen, and there's the word, repent, and do the first work or else. People don't think the Lord talks like this. Repent or else. I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. This is saying, the Lord is basically saying, I'm not going to stick around in a church where they don't love me. And it's real. And so unless I call these the three R's, it's a good way of remembering the Lord's repent or else. The first thing is remember. Remember what it was like when you first gave your life to the Lord and it was genuine. You couldn't, you couldn't keep your mouth shut. You had to tell everybody. And um, all you thought about day and night was, was the Lord. Go back to remember. Uh, Your first love. And then when you remember it, and if you've gotten any farther away from that, then from that moment on, the next thing is repent. Repent simply means turn around. Get back and do the most important thing. And then the last one is return. So there's your three R's. Remember what it was like. Repent and get back to it. And number three, return back to me. But notice a track record that these guys had going for themselves. Your labor, patience, they were up on, they've tested false doctrine, Um, they persevered, they didn't give up when the going got tough. You've labored for my name's sake, you have me come weary, that's that's a pretty good uh, list of achievements for any church. But the Lord wasn't impressed. All right, I'll give away my age. Peter and Gordon, (laughs) they wrote a song in the 60s which basically said, I won't stay in a world without love. I'm not interested in it. The idealism of the 60s, not gonna stay. I don't care what they say, I won't stay in a world without love. That's what Jesus is saying. I don't care what you do. I'm not gonna stay in a church if you don't love me first. You can turn to it if you want to. I'll quote it otherwise. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse one. Though I speak with tongues of men and of angels, and if I have not love, I have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. Though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but if I don't have love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, a martyr, and have not love, it profits me absolutely nothing. Paul, in writing to the Corinthians, gives the motive for ministry. Again, if you're taking notes, it's 2 Corinthians 5.14. In other words, why we do what we do. You want some attention, you want to be seen, you want some notoriety? Paul says it's the love of Christ That compels us. Now, the New King James says compels. The King James says constrains me. We're talking motive here. In other words, he's saying I'm doing what I'm doing because my love for Christ compels me to do it. No other motive. Because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. And in Matthew 12, verse 30, again, the greatest commandment. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And what does he say in verse five? Repent or else. Or else what? Not going to be sticking around a church that's not in love with me first and foremost. And more importantly, the motive of why you do what you do is because you love Love uh, because you love the Lord. All right, let's move on to the next one, which would be the Church of Pergamos. What a beautiful place Pergamus is. It's um, uh, up on top of a very, very huge hill that has a beautiful amphitheater, the cheapest one I've ever seen. And it's just a gorgeous, what a gorgeous place to visit. However, they had their own problems this church is gonna to ask to repent as is the next one of false doctrine. So let's pick it up in Revelation 2 verse 12 and to the angel of the church of Pergamos write, these things says he who has a sharp two-edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and have not denied my faith even in the days when Antipas which was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you have there who hold to the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Now, without going into the whole story of Balaam and Balak, Basically, the children of Israel after 40 years are getting ready to enter into the promised land. And uh, Balak um, is scared to death because everybody before the children of Israel went, they've been destroyed, and now they're next in line. So he's thinking, what am I going to do? So he calls for Balaam. Balaam's an interesting character because he's called a prophet of the Lord, but it also says he was in the sorcery. And he says, he basically hires them for money. And he says, I want you to curse these people. And every time he tried to curse the people, all he could do is say, oh, how beautiful the tents of the Lord are and how much the Lord loves his people. And he would pronounce blessings upon them. And Balak would get all bent out of shape. I hired you not to bless them, but to curse them. What are you doing? Well, let's try another mountain. So they go to another mountain. This is repeated, but every time it's blessings instead of curse. And he said, I give it my best shot, but the Lord's just not let me do anything but bless them. He says, but I tell you what, let me give you a little advice. You get your gals down here, and you bring them down into the tents of Israel, and you have your gals teach our men how you worship your gods. That's why it says here, it taught them how to commit sexual immorality. Uh, it's called the doctrine of Balaam, the counsel of Balaam. Well, he took them up on the council. The men came down, had sexual relationship with the women. As a result, God um, brought the judgment against them because they had sinned against him. So that was the first one. Then it goes in verse 15 and says, Not only that, but you hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which things I hate. If you go back to verse six of Ephesus, after the Lord rebuked them, said, you guys get back to your first love. I like this because he doesn't leave them on a guilt trip. He builds them back up again by saying something good about them. And anybody that talks to people or witnesses to people and you have to do a correction, this is really a beautiful blueprint of how to go about doing it. Deal business, be black and white, get to the heart of the matter, make it right, but when it's right, why don't you say something positive about the person? So we read in verse six after he says, unless you repent, the next verse he says, well, but this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Uh, What was beginning to enter into the church that Ephesus stood up against was this whole idea of a hierarchy that by putting on a collar or wearing a robe that it would give the impression that I got something up over you if I dressed that way. And um, the Lord says, I hate it. He said, if you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven, what do you have to do? Be servant of all. Not the other way around. But the doctrine of a Nicolaitan is two Latin words, Nico and Laity oversight of people your laity okay and now we're having a leadership structure that's being established Ephesus wouldn't put up with it but here by the time we get to Pergamus he says and this you also have the doctrine of the nicolaitans which thing i hate repent or else so now as Jesus is dealing with the church he says i want no hierarchy in the church And um, there's not one of you that's above the other. I'm certainly not above you. I'm your servant. God has called me to be in a servanthood as a pastor, teacher, and that sort of thing. Everybody has their gifts, but make no mistake about it. Never cop an attitude that you got one up on somebody else because of a gift. A really good place for it, amen. God hates it. I hate the doctrine of a hierarchy in a church structure. You are servants, so you want, to, you want to be important and big? Good, be the servant of everybody else. And don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing and your heavenly father who sees in secret, well, he'll reward you openly. So that takes care of that one. Let's go on to Thyatira. I should make mention, this is, when I uh, taught through this, every church was one week. And so we could get into a lot of depth here, but I, of course, can't do that. But one of the things that I point out is it really does lay out a picture of church history. And four times he says to these seven churches, till I come. What does that mean? It means that four of these churches will be in existence when Jesus comes again. Because he uses that phrase, do this until I come. But to three of them, he doesn't. So I'll point out what those four churches are right now if you're, if you're taking notes. We have dead Protestantism that's mentioned here. We have Roman Catholicism and Thyatira. We have um, uh, the Church of Philadelphia and the Church of Laodicea. The, what basically is saying that they will be in existence when the Lord returns. Um, Let's go to verse 18 to the church of Thyatira, which I believe uh, you'll understand why I believe it's a um, uh, mention of Roman Catholicism. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write These things says the Son of Man, who has eyes like flames of fire, his feet like fine brass. I know your works, your love, service, faith, your patience. And your works, the last, are more than the first. To Roman Catholicism's credit, wherever you go in the world, um, usually the first hospitals, orphanages, um, were planted there by the Roman Catholic Church worldwide. And the Lord acknowledges that here. And your love for doing that for people were there. But then he says, nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you'll allow that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess to teach and beguile my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. All right, now I gotta give you a small background on Jezebel. She married Ahab. She introduced the worship of Baal in the nation of Israel. So now the reference here. It says sexual immorality, it's really spiritual immorality but he's liking it unto sexual immorality. What did Jezebel do? She brought in the worship of Baal when they were supposed to be worshiping Jehovah. And I gave her time to do what? To repent of her sexual immorality but she did not. In other words, what happened in Roman Catholicism they began to add things to um, doctrine. This is again the correction of doctrine. And he, says, um, he said, indeed I will cast you into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation. I believe that's literal. That unless they repent of their deeds. Well, what did this church enter into Christianity that's not in the Bible. Bear with me. I'll just list 22. Infant baptism, 431. The mass, 500. Purging sin, 593. Prayer for the dead, 600. Prayers for Mary, 600. Worship of images, in 786. Declaring saints, 995. That's a hierarchy. Mandatory mass, about 1,000. The celibacy of priests, 1079. The Rosary Invented, 1090. The Inquisition, 1184. Indulgences being sold, about 1200, which built St. Peter's Basilica. Transubstantiation, the Lord being sacrificed every Sunday. Uh, confessing your sins to a priest, 1215. Reading the Bible, Forbidden, 1229. Purgatory, 1438. 1438. Um, tradition, give, get given authority, adding books to the Bible, Mary born without sin, the Pope is infallible, Mary can save you, Mary's body never decomposed. These teachings are not accepted by Christianity because they're not taught in the Bible. Not only are they not taught from the Bible, they're not in the Bible. Now, if you're taking notes, Revelation 22 the very last thing the Bible says. If anybody adds to or takes away of the things that are written in this book, then I'm gonna add unto him the plagues that are in this book. Is this church therefore going to go through great tribulation unless they repent? Yes, I believe they will. Just flip over to Revelation chapter 17. What happens to billions of people who have added to? And this is a verse that you need to copy down so that you can understand that um, this this is serious stuff. Some people don't like it, even though I'll, I'll pick on dead Roman uh, uh, Protestantism and the Laodicean Church. For some reason, Roman Catholicism when they're off, they don't they don't like me talking about it. But Romans eleven six and this sums it up. If we're saved by grace, then it's no longer works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if we're saved of works, then it's no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. You can't have it both ways. You can't be saved by grace and add all these other things to it as conditions uh, for going to heaven. Uh, It's either grace or works. Revelation 17 um, is the Lord speaking to John and it talks about for the first three and a half years there's going to be a church of people who thought they were Christians and they have a headquarters. And the beast is actually gonna make war against the city. And verse 16 of chapter 17, and the 10 horns which you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot, which is the church that remains after the rapture, and make her desolate, naked, eat her flesh, and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to fulfill his purpose, to be of one mind, to give their children kingdom to the beast until the word of God is fulfilled. Now, the woman who you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. The one city that reigned in 96 AD over the rest of the world was what? It was Rome, the city of seven hills. That's where the headquarters of this place is going to be. The Antichrist won't put up with it for long because he wants to be the only one who's worshiped. They gotta go. So it eventually will be destroyed and I think the Lord talks about it um, and uh, back back to the seven churches. So again, he says, uh, unless they repent, I'm going to um, cast you into great tribulation. The next one is Sardis, and uh, let's read verses one through three. And to the angel of the church of Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God, the seven stars. I know your works. You have a name that you are alive, but you're dead. I call this dead Protestantism. In other words, going to church every Sunday, putting a 20 in a collection plate, and then go and live your own life. You have a name that you're alive. Are you a Christian? Of course I'm a Christian. Go to church? Yeah, I go to church. But they're not born again. They're still dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. I see that across the country today. For I have found your works, um, for I have found not, uh, have not found your works perfect before God. Remember therefore how you received and heard. Remember the reformation. Remember when Martin Luther as a Catholic priest, put the 94 Theses on the Wittenberg door. No, 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 not by works, but by faith through grace. Remember that. Remember where it started. And repent. Therefore, and this is so important for the times we're living, if you will not what? Watch. Well, what are you supposed to be watching for? I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I come upon you. This is clearly a church that is living in the last days. What do they need to repent of? Not watching. I talked with a guy just just this week. And the more we talked, found out he was a believer, he found out I was a believer. And we talked about churches and things like that. And uh, got around to, um, oh yeah, yeah. Um, uh, We don't talk too much about Bible prophecy. And he said that because he knew that we did. (laughs) And I said, well, we have to. It's not something that we sort of pick out and emphasize, but if you're going to teach the Bible all the way through, you're going to have to deal with the issue because it's all the way through. More than a third or or four-fifths, whatever, of the Bible is about Bible prophecy, in particular, uh, the glorious appearing of us being with him. We call it the blessed hope. And we're watching... For it, and so we began to talk about current events, and all of a sudden he's interested. We talked about the Leviathan gas find and off the shores of Israel, how that's rubbing Russia the wrong way. They they're in Israel right now. Um, Erdogan now is no longer pro-West. He hates Israel, and uh, Russia uh, just uh, sent them a shipment of their 400S missiles that we're kind of upset about, so we're pulling back our F-35s from them. And that's watching. And I said, are you familiar with Ezekiel 38 and 39? He goes, well, not really. And I said, well, this is what's happening. The other player is Iran. And so we have the three major players all coming against Israel at one time. And yet it's not being talked about in most places. And it was all news to him. But he saw the competition because 60% of Russia's economy is shipping natural gas into Europe. And they've never had competition before. And with the Leviathan gas fine, 70 trillion cubic meters of natural gas, the deal's already been made to sell it to, to, um, to Europe. So what do you do if you're Putin? You get put out. That's what you get. <laughs> you get ticked off. Your competition. We don't like competition. Our economy is fragile, completely dependent on our oil being shipped and our natural gas. So they're there for one reason. Iran is there because of their hatred with the Sunnis and, um, and their hatred of Israel. And I'm getting off track, so i got to get back on track what were they to repent of? They they had no idea what was going around them biblically, prophetically. Remember therefore how you have received and heard, hold fast and repent. Therefore if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief and you will not know what hour I'm coming upon you. But I think my final words to him is it could be anything um, that could cause a shoe to drop to bring about the Lord's return because we're watching these things. Let's go on to the last one. Um, We find in Revelation 3 now, let's go to verses 14, the church of Laodicea. 14 through 19. And to the angel of the church of Laodicea write, these things says the amen, the faithful and the true, witness the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot. So then because you're lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I'm going to spew you the word there is literally vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say I'm rich, I become wealthy, I'm not in need of nothing, and you don't know that was their perspective of themselves. Here's the Lord's perspective. He says what you don't realize is that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy for me gold refined in a fire. What is that? Oh, they're the trials that we go through for being a Christian, for not compromising, and not going with whatever the latest trend or program is. We say no thank you, we're just gonna stick to the word of God and not change from that. Everything changes, every generation changes. My Bible says Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I am the Lord God. I change not. I counsel you to buy for me gold refined in the fire, and you'll be rich. And white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And your eyes anointed with eye salve. As many as I love, I rebuke and chastise. And so, um, I got an email from my friend Mike Crow, who's been in China for I don't know, 20 years, something like that. And uh, he sent one. I don't usually get back with them, but I, I got back with them on this one because of the intensity of the persecution that um, pastors and their wives are now disappearing. Uh, they're they're sending people in as pretend Christians into the house churches. So they, they can squeal on them and let them know where they are. Uh, Mike wanted to know, we've been supporting them all these years. Um, if, I said, do you guys stop supporting us? And I said, Mike, why would we do that? He said, well, we haven't got anything since March. I said, I'll look into it. And what we, we finally figured out um, is we think they're cutting off the funds before they can get to the missionaries that are there. So all that to say this, Mike says we have to move. It's that dangerous in China right now. So here is uh, this church here, Laodicea, the rich, not going through any difficulties, no trials, and I'm thinking about Mike and Katie Crow, and uh, they, I know their love and commitment to the people in China, and for them to pack up and leave, it's serious. But this is what the Lord counsels Um, why don't you try going through some fiery trials? Put your life on the line for the Lord. That's what they're doing. Um, They'll probably end up in Singapore and use that as a base, but they're not going to stop. They're going to keep on pressing on. That wasn't in my notes either. (laughs) Let's finish this up. Um, Basically, the Lord says, In verse 19, as many as I love, I rebuke and chastise. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Repent of what? Being either cold or hot. And so what we have here is the Lord telling the church to repent because they are misperception of what real biblical Christianity is all about. Many of the prosperity churches will tell you it's all about Um, being healthy, wealthy, and prosperous. And if Jesus was here, he'd be driving a Porsche for sure. (laughs) And I say, are you kidding me? This is the same guy that said, birds have nests and foxes have holes, but the Son of Man doesn't have a place to lay his head. That's the Jesus I know. But this church here has a completely different attitude. If you're really doing good with the Lord, boy, you're gonna be blessed. And all these ways, no, that's not what it teaches. Repent of it. And as many as I love, he says, I rebuke and chastise. I want to camp on this thought for a second. If I love you, then you're going to get spanked from time to time. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Picking it up in verse 5. Hebrews 12 verse 5 says that you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. My son, do not despise the chastising of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you're rebuked by them. That's what he did to these churches in, in Revelation. He was rebuking them and telling them to repent. But he says, don't let it get you down. I do that because I love you. For whom the Lord loves, he chastises and scourges every son whom he receives. Now, if you endure the chastising, and you don't pout and say, I'm not gonna go there anymore or serve the Lord anymore, uh, God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chastise? But if you are without chastising, of which we have all become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. So if you're not going through fiery trials... If you're not getting convicted by the Holy Spirit, then you're not even a son. Furthermore, we have human fathers who corrected us. We paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For indeed, for a few days he chastised us as he best to them, but he for our profit. Why does he rebuke us? As many as I love, I will correct and chastise that we may be partakers of his holiness now no chastisement seems to be joyful for the present oh praise the Lord I'm going through a fiery trial today it's wonderful to are going through fiery trials no nothing pleasant about it at all but what's going to happen going to hang in there going to press on going to be faithful for what he's called you to do or are you going to turn back say I don't want to do this anymore Nevertheless, afterwards it yields a peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who, and here's the big words, been trained by it. What trains us? When the Lord corrects us and we hear him, it's a training process. Just like you would train your child as they're growing up. Don't touch the stove, it's hot. Well, then they don't learn and they touch the stove and then they learn the lesson. I'm not going to touch the stove anymore. I get burned. And so this whole idea is part of the, of the Christian walk. Well, um, let's turn to Luke for our final verse this morning, and I want to quote something from Wisdom from the Day. Let's go back to um, Luke chapter 18. And let's take a look at what true repentance looks like. It's only a couple of verses, 9 through 14. The parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. What real repentance looks like. And he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee the other tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus within himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this guy next to me, this tax collector. By the way, I fast twice a week. I do tithe of all that I have. And the tax collector, no, um, they were hated uh, he was standing afar off. He would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then the Lord says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be abased, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. This is what true repentance um, looks like. I was reading in my wisdom for today this week, and on the twelfth it was titled True Forgiveness, Matthew eighteen, the verse that we were just in, and where it says And Peter came and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? And Jesus said unto him, Up to seventy times seven. And his paragraph quote is, Forgiveness is not a matter of mathematics. It's a matter of spirit. When God forgives, he forgets. He never brings it up again. We would do well to imitate him. He has forgiven us as such a great debt, yet it's amazing what little things will uh, rankle us and cause us to be angry and resentful towards others. Too often our attitude is, well, I'll forgive, but I'm not going to forget. Jesus would answer, that is not forgiveness. For a believer, forgiveness is not an option. It's a requirement. But God will enable you to do whatever he requires. If you lack the strength to forgive, all you have to do is ask the Holy Spirit to work that forgiveness through you What a glorious thing it is when God's love flows through us to heal another. And I will close with this question this morning because it probably applies to all of us to one degree or another. So it's simply this. So who comes to your mind when it comes to the area of forgiving? Um... I'll never, some of you are thinking, yeah, but Dwight, if you know what that person did to me, I'll never forgive them for what they did to me. I'll never, ever do it. My answer to that is after the Bible study this morning, if you understand it, do it. And do it now. For their sake? No, for your sake. Why? Well, the simple fact is Chuck hit on it You see, you and I have been forgiven of something that nobody else can forgive us. Our debt is so big. Our sins are so many. Only Jesus can forgive us of that sin. Now, if he's done that for us, then again, how dare we even think for a second that we would hold anything over anybody, and let me qualify this, if if with a real heart they want to come and make things right. And if that's in their heart, then you have no grounds not to forgive that person. Good place for an amen and an amen? Let's stand up and We'll pray. Lord, even as we pray this morning, and if we have that person in our heart and mind, maybe it's been there for a day, a week, a month, a year, whoever it is, and they want to make things right and they want forgiveness but it's being withheld lord i pray your word as you told the church Um, repent or else and um, lord we want to live free and open before you and our brothers and sisters in christ and we can only do that if we walk in forgiveness because all of us sin every single day saying things we shouldn't doing things we shouldn't do And you're so gracious, Lord, to wipe the slate clean. As your word tells us, your mercies are new every single morning. So, Lord, help us reflect your nature when it comes to forgiving others. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Merciful to me, a sinner. And then the Lord says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be abased, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. This is what true repentance um, looks like. I was reading in my wisdom for today this week, and on the 12th, it was titled, True Forgiveness, Matthew 18, the verse that we were just in. And where it says, and Peter came and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him, up to seven times? And Jesus said unto him, up to 70 times seven. And his paragraph quote is Forgiveness is not a matter of mathematics, it's a matter of spirit. When God forgives, he forgets, he never brings it up again. We would do well to imitate him. He has forgiven us as such a great debt, yet it's amazing what little things will uh, rankle us and cause us to be angry and resentful towards others. Too often our attitude is, well, I'll forgive, but I'm not going to forget. Jesus would answer, that is not forgiveness. For a believer, forgiveness is not an option. It's a requirement. But God will enable you to do whatever he requires. If you lack the strength to forgive, all you have to do is ask the Holy Spirit to work that forgiveness through you. What a glorious thing it is when God's love flows through us to heal another. And I will close with this question this morning because it probably applies to all of us to one degree or another. So it's simply this. So who comes to your mind when it comes to the area of forgiving? Um, I'll never, some of you are thinking, yeah, but Dwight, if you know what that person did to me, I'll never forgive them for what they did to me. I'll never, ever do it. My answer to that is after the Bible study this morning, if you understand it, do it. And do it now. For their sake? No. For your sake. Why? Well, the simple fact is, Chuck hit on it. You see, you and I have been forgiven of something that nobody else can forgive us. Our debt is so big. Our sins are so many. Only Jesus can forgive us of that sin. Now, if he's done that for us, then again, how dare we even think for a second that we would hold anything over anybody, and let me qualify this, if. If with a real heart they want to come and make things right. And if that's in their heart, then you have no grounds not to forgive that person. Good place for an amen and an amen? Let's stand up, we'll pray. Lord, even as we pray this morning, and if we have that person in our heart and mind, maybe it's been there for a day, a week, a month, a year, whoever it is, and they wanna make things right and they want forgiveness, but it's being withheld. Lord, I pray your word as you told the church, Um, repent or else, and um, Lord, we wanna live free and open before you and our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we can only do that if we walk in forgiveness because all of us sin every single day. Saying things we shouldn't, doing things we shouldn't do. And you're so gracious, Lord, to wipe the slate clean. As your word tells us, your mercies are new every single morning. So, Lord, help us reflect your nature when it comes to forgiving others. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.